Open up your Bibles to the book of the Song of Solomon, and we'll look there in just a moment. Song of Solomon. Um, the book of Song of Solomon is um, an awkward book. You probably haven't been in many, many Bible classes where you study the Song of Solomon. You might not have heard many sermons on the Song of Solomon. And it's not because it's a book that we don't know what it's talking about. It's because it's a book that we do know what it's talking about. And so that makes it awkward. Because it's talking about how a man and a woman love each other, and particularly how they love each other intimately. And, um, and I think that we, <clears throat> we avoid that because, because we don't know how to talk about that in public. Uh, and in fact, I think in a lot of ways we yield that kind of conversation to the world, and we say, we say that's um, you know, it's tawdry con- conversation. Well, certainly the way the world talks about it is tawdry, but it's but it's God's relationship. The world's the one that's perverted it. They've made it something that's awkward and um, difficult to talk about. I'll suggest that in a lot of ways that uh, the sort of intimacy, the sexual relationship, is one that is um, more difficult because we are more disconnected from nature. You know, they talk about having the conversation of the birds and the bees. People used to observe birds and bees, and they used to observe farm animals, and they used to observe, you know, how procreation happened. We don't observe that anymore. Now, in fact, like if your kids see that somewhere, you're like, ooh, don't, don't look at that. Mommy, what are those dogs doing out there, you know? So, so it's awkward. And I understand that, and I don't want to act like it's not. Uh, but I do want to act like it's in the Bible. You know, I, I don't want to act like, oh, let's, let's not read that. In fact, when it comes to, the, uh, to this book, the Song of Songs, um, incidentally, we're told that Solomon wrote uh, a thousand songs, but only one of them's included in the Bible. And... It's titled the Song of Songs, which means it's the best song that he wrote. So, um, the best song that Solomon wrote was about uh, marital love, about the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. That says something in and of itself. I do think that there's something to note as well about some irony at Solomon writing about this subject. When you look at Solomon, you think, you know, who could tell us about how to how to make a woman feel like she is special and that there is no other? A man with a thousand wives. Yeah, now that's, that's the guy you expect to be able to tell you how to go about this. No, you don't. You don't expect that. In fact, Solomon was an utter failure when it came to this very department in his life. Not just this department, but, um, but the resultant um, sort of degradation and... and derailing of his life because of his failure in this very area so that he he goes against so much that he tells us in the Proverbs, so much that he tells us in Ecclesiastes, and yes, certainly what he tells us here. I want to suggest this, uh, an observation on that basis. That does not take away from the truth of what Solomon says here one whit. This is still the inspired word of God. Now, I think... Um, we, uh, as a culture, are in a real struggle about what to do with people who said good things but turned out to be horrible people. And the, the general consensus seems to be, 
um, don't ever talk about them again. Right? Just strike them from the record. Take them out of the history books. Let's act like they never existed. Well, they may have done horrible things. But if they said true things, those things are still true. And Solomon doesn't live up to these truths in his own personal life. It's still true. And so that's just an observation in a, in a moment of, I think, cultural chaos that we still find value, that, that we look for true things and, and they do not hinge on the people who said them. Well, <clears throat> I want to notice a few things about love, about love between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife from the book of Song of Solomon. It is um, uh, one of two sermons that I have preached on this book. First time that I preached a sermon from Song of Solomon, somebody said to me, that's the first sermon I've heard on Song of Solomon. I said, well, that's interesting because it's the first one I've preached on Song of Solomon. Then I preached this one. This is the second sermon. And I was reminded of that commercial. Y'all may have seen it where the, the fellow's about to skydive and he asked the, the instructor, is it is it as scary the second time? And the instructor says, I'll let you know. And uh, so that's, that's kind of how you feel about preaching the second time on Song of Solomon. But I, I hope that there's some valuable things that we can take away from this book. The first thing that I would like to address is what to do before you're married, right? So before we are married, then the kind of love that Solomon is talking about, the sexual relationship, he is very, I think, emphatic throughout this book. In fact, um, it is the bride here who is emphatic about that for the most part. But the idea is wait. That's what you do before you're married. In Song of Solomon uh, 2 and verse 7, it says there, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Again in chapter 3 and verse 5, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. And then finally, once again, over in chapter 8, and in verse 4, I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. The idea is that until there is, until it is appropriate to consummate, then not only do you avoid sexual immorality, not only do you avoid the sexual relationship, but you don't start down the path of the sexual relationship. Over in, in um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I have um, preached lessons from this particular passage uh, speaking about sexual immorality. And particularly, it, one of the points that I like to make from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in regards to sexual morality, some people think that our sexual morality is simply old-fashioned. Right, the, the notion that you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, that's just old-fashioned. It's just, all we're doing is we're kind of living in, we're borrowing our morals from a Victorian time or whatever. We're, we're borrowing them from, from God, that's what we're doing. And Paul preached those in the middle of a society who was more sexually open than we can imagine. I mean, they just... They had more terms for sexual perversion than we even have. I don't know if you know that. I mean, that, that they, the, the way that they went about this uh, was so much more public even 
than we go about it. And yet Paul is very clear. He simply says, don't. He says, beginning in chapter 4, uh, uh, verse 1, Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that, you, uh, that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandment meant, uh, excuse me, uh, you know what commandments uh, that we gave you um, by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles, it's like society, like everybody around you is doing, but rather those who know God. So Paul is not being old-fashioned when he preaches this. In fact, he's being very countercultural when he preaches this. So we're not following some first century notion of morality. We're following the thing that was countercultural in the first century and it's countercultural today. Solomon does not just say abstain. In the Song of Solomon, the woman in this song sings, don't wake up the beast. Don't get started down a path that you have no right to go to the end of. And I think that's a very important thing that when you when you do that, you are not in control. You you begin to put yourself in a place where where you're not in control. So many times when I'm talking to young people about this, and we'll talk more about this later in the week, when I'm talking to young people about um, sexual purity, they, they want to know, how far can I go? And, and the idea that I try to communicate to them is, is what you're saying is, how far can I go into a process and then stop it? And the idea here is you won't stop it, right? When you start that process... Here's where it goes. So don't start that process until you can go there. Do not awaken love until she pleases. There are consequences if you do. Chapter 2 and verse 15. A little phrase here. It says, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. Y'all, around here, y'all probably know more about um, uh, about plant life than a lot of places that I preach. So you probably know that when the blossom comes, that's just a, a, a foretelling of what's coming later, right? Things aren't ready yet. And what would you think of a farmer who went out and started harvesting when the cotton blossomed, right? That'd be a bad farmer, right? So, so you wait. He says, hey, we're on the way, right? So that's what you want to see. You want to see a blossom, but that's just getting started. And so the, the idea of, of awakening before she pleases, that's like letting the foxes come in and they eat the blossoms before the grapes actually come. And the grapes are what you want. Flowers might be pretty, but they don't do you any good. You want to wait till you got the actual thing, the actual, pro- the, the actual product that satisfies before you go out there and you touch that plant. You take anything from that plant. It's not ready. And I think that one thing that we need to communicate is that there are consequences. Like the fox coming in. You are ruining something when you go and take from that. If you take that blossom, then you don't get the product. You're messing things up. And there are greater consequences to that than I even think we are 
are able to conceive of. Over in Isaiah chapter 5, in Isaiah chapter 5, when we preach about sexual morality, sexual purity, a lot of people think we're just being prudish. You know, they think maybe, oh, those people, they're just, they're just repressed. You know, they just don't know. They don't know how much fun that is. And they're just trying to keep us from fun. I think kids think that sometimes. Oh, they're the grown people and they just don't want us to be happy. It's the very opposite. We want you to be happy. That's what we're trying to keep you from is misery. And over in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1 beginning, it says, Let me sing for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. And then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. The idea here that God is saying is, I am protecting you. I'm I'm keeping you from the disaster that comes when you take away God's rules, when you take away God's laws. Here's what that looks like. Unprotected vineyard. Now, I know he's not talking specifically about sexual morality in Isaiah chapter 5, but it certainly would be inclusive of that. But go back to Song of Solomon and the idea of the vineyard. What we're trying to do is protect the vineyard. There's wonderful things coming if you protect that vineyard. And he says, you don't want to give that. You don't want to take that where it's not yours to give and not yours to take. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul talks about the people who are joining themselves. Here's an illustration of some of that sexual morality of the first century that I was talking about. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and beginning in verse 15, he's talking about those who would lay with harlots. It was a public thing, right? So you're just walking around and uh, the the idolatrous temples were, um, they weren't like tucked away in the red district, right? They're just, that's, that's like... Uh, down in the town square, right? That's that's where people would normally go. And there, they're professional prostitutes supported by the state government. <laughs> and you go in and you, and that's just part of life, right? That, that's just normal expectation in Corinth. I, I think sometimes we don't realize, you know, we talk about the depravity and there is depravity. I don't want to minimize that at all. But I don't think we understand what it would be like to live in that kind of place. And that's where Paul was preaching. And we get a little bit of a sense of that all through this book. But one of the things that he says here in chapter 6, he's trying to convince. Think about this. Paul is writing a letter to the church trying to convince members of the Lord's church in Corinth to stop laying with prostitutes. I don't know about y'all, but I've never had to specifically 
get up and try to convince members of the church to stop going and seeing prostitutes. Paul had to write that letter. Well, at any rate, what does he say to them? Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Now, I don't think Paul is saying here that if you go and you lay with a prostitute, you have de facto, you've, you've by doing that, married her. It's not the idea there. But the idea is that you have engaged with her in a way that should only happen in marriage. And I think the idea is that you've given her more than you think you've given her. They had reduced the sexual relationship to a mere business transaction. And haven't we done that in our society in so many ways that we've made um, sexual morality into a, a mere business? Literally, we've, we've made that into a business. And God says, no, or Paul, through inspiration here, says, no, there's, there's more happening there than you realize. You're becoming one flesh. You're, you're giving over to her and taking from her things that are deeper than just this, uh, this benefit. And, and you may think you can walk away from that with no consequences, but it's not true. And people who think that they can engage with that and, that, and, and just uh, there's, there's no strings attached. Oh, there's strings. You may not know that those strings are there for years, but they're there. And so don't, don't give that and don't take that from a prostitute. That's marriage. And, he, and particularly he says that's Christ's. That's the kind of loyalty you owe to Christ. And we'll come back around to that thought. So, I just start by saying, uh, when it comes to the sexual relationship, Song of Solomon, which is very free and very open in the language it uses to describe the sexual relationship, also contains language that limits it and says, whoa, slow down. That belongs here and only here and at the right time. And inside that relationship, he says, it is a beautiful thing. Now, inside of that relationship, what he says is, drink fully. So when we enter into marriage, the idea is that this ought to be a um, this ought to be a, a very thorough part of the relationship and obviously a very enjoyable part of the marriage relationship. So look at some of the things that he says here beginning in chapter 1 and verse 2. Um, it says the, the, the Shulamite woman, she says, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. The idea of wine is used several times, the drinking up of his love or of her love, down in chapter 2 and verse 4. He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Over in chapter 4 and in verse 10, chapter 4 and in verse 10, it says, How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices? Over in chapter 7 and verse 2, your navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine and your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. I'll come back to some of that language you may be saying. Is that supposed to be a compliment? And it is actually, but we'll get back to that. But notice the drinking up of each other, other's love. Down in verse 9, 
and your mouth is like the best wine. It goes down smoothly from my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. I think the idea here in this drinking up of one another that there is not supposed to be moderation. That we should not hold back from one another sexually. He says in chapter 5 and verse 1, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my uh, balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. The idea is that you've come to a banquet for which gluttony should not be a problem. You've come to the banquet for which drunkenness is not a problem. Drink up, he says. You might say that's that's awkward. I'm going to tell you what. God's people in marriage should be the least sexually oppressed people and repressed people that there are. And I think generally that's true, or at least historically that's true. When people point back to the Victorian age in which people were all kind of buttoned up up to the neck and they you know didn't allow their ankles to be shown. Ooh, man, those people. They just so so tied up sexually. They were having about a dozen children apiece. Apparently they weren't that sexually repressed. No. They apparently enjoyed each other's company enough, often enough, and the evidence is there. But I think the idea is it's not out there. Like it's not out there for everybody to see. That's that's ours. And it's and it's something that that we don't have to show off to everybody. But it should be something that we have inside the confines of that relationship. Show it, so it should be that, that place of of real joy. That it should rise above mere sexual pl- pleasure. I think sometimes people talk about uh, the sex relationship as if it is sort of a, a, a perk of being married. It's, it's not the idea at all. It's like a deeply satisfying aspect of being married where you're really giving yourselves over. Paul talks about it that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Your body's not yours. You're able to give that over to somebody else. The idea of trusting someone enough to say, this is yours, to do with what you want. That's, that's real trust, which incidentally ought to make you think real hard before you get married. Do you trust somebody that much? And so that you're willing to give yourself over to that degree. I do think that there's one thing uh, to note about that kind of language and about Paul's usage of, of that language in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we already looked at with the, the case of the prostitute, but then also Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 31 and 32 that, that this kind of love, this kind of deep connection that we have through the sexual relationship is a foreshadowing of an even deeper connection. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31, Ephesians 5 and verse 31, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's the quote from Genesis chapter 2. But then it says, This mystery is great, but... I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, he says, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself. It's interesting as Paul comes down through here and he's talking about the marriage relationship, that's generally what we go to Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. We go there to talk about husbands and wives, but Paul says, what I'm really talking about is Christ and the church. 
but to use the modern vernacular, you are not ready for that conversation. And that's what Paul's saying to the Ephesians. I'm not sure you can quite grasp the depth of what I mean. So I'm going to go ahead and come back to this conversation about the family. But what I want you to understand is that the depth of a relationship with Christ, that marriage points to that. Now, some people might get uncomfortable when we start talking about that. I don't think that Song of Solomon is an allegory. I don't think it's actually talking about Christ or something like that. I think it is, in fact, literally speaking of Solomon and a woman that he is trying to win over and who is enamored with him as well. I, I, I believe that. And yet, I think everything in some way points to Christ. And I think that this is no exception. So somebody says, so you're talking about uh, lining up the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife and, and that relationship with Christ. Now, that's uncomfortable. Well, yeah. I mean, I understand why it would be. But the idea, though, is, is the idea of intimacy. And it doesn't... Again... If we think that that's tawdry, that's because we've bought into the world's identity of that relationship. The world's perversion of that relationship. Now, I don't know about you, but when when I was growing up, um, you know, I was like most little boys at, at a certain age. You think that the idea of, of intimacy with a girl is disgusting. I have a nephew... Who, who's, who's not like mean to girls or anything like that. In fact, he's, he's pretty nice and gets along well and speaks well. And one day he said to his mom, he said, I, I think I, I probably will not be, be able to get married. And she said, why not? Do you not? Do you not like any girls? And he goes, it's not that I don't like them, but we went to this wedding. They had recently gone to a wedding. And, and I saw that you had to kiss a girl. So I'm out. I just, I just couldn't do that. Now, you can't explain to an eight-year-old boy that one day, that'll be pretty exciting. Because for him right now, that's just gross. And there's just a million things in the world he'd rather do than that. And one day, he'd rather do that than a million other things in the world. But you can't quite get that across to him. And in fact, I don't want you to. I'm fine with him going on thinking that's gross for a lot of more years before he comes around to thinking maybe that's a pretty exciting thing. But that's kind of how it is with us in the marriage relationship. As exciting and as wonderful as that part of marriage is, what God is communicating to us is there is something between us and Christ, between us and God, that when that relationship is consummated, you see, it's a marriage scene, in Revelation. When Christ the bridegroom comes and we are the bride. And when that relationship is consummated, then the thing, that relationship that we have here that is above all others and is so precious and is so intimate will be like looking back on ourselves when we were children. And we could not have conceived of how wonderful marriage could be. And we look back and see ourselves as childish. I think that's the way it'll be in heaven. I think that's the the only explanation I can think of for the fact that there's no marrying or giving in marriage. You know, we spend our lives with people and we think, all I want to do is be able to see that person one more time when we're separated. And God says, you will love me so much 
that you will see that person and you won't think anything of the fact that you're not married. That means that relationship's even better. It's even deeper. It's even more satisfying than this relationship. So, so don't pervert it. Because it's special. And it's pointing to more eternal things than are going on right here. And we want that. We want that specialness that points to even more specialness. Well, finally then, I want to spend a few minutes looking at the language that is used back here in Solomon's Song of Songs. The idea of speaking this way to each other, speaking the way that they speak in this song, is is becoming less and less of a thing. There was a time when I think people at least, at least they... Uh, they wrote in books and plays and so forth that they talked to each other like this. I don't know if they actually did. I read Jane Austen or Charles Dickens, and people say, I, you know, I earnestly desire to communicate. You know, we don't, we don't talk like that anymore. We're so casual in our language with one another. We're so, like, backhanded in our compliments. When I go shopping for a card... I can't, it's, it's like, if you, you ever go shopping for a card for your wife and you're reading through the romance and you're going, and she's just going to roll her eyes, I'm going to get something funny. Because I don't, I don't want her to be like, oh, please. And that's how we think, I, I'm afraid, too much. There needs to be some serious, earnest complimenting of one another. And that, that happens through the book of the Song of Solomon. So, one of the things that we need to do is lift each other up when the other doesn't think well of themselves. It says in chapter 1 and verse 6, the Shunammite says, Do not stare at me, because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. So here's a woman who has been out in the sun and suntans weren't in fashion back then. And so she's gotten pretty dark. And what's, what, what that means is she's not, she's not been the kind of woman who's able to stay inside and really take care of herself. In fact, she would talk about that, that when she goes around, that, that, that the others are making fun of her, the ones who have had the chance to take care of their vineyard, the ones who, who put on their makeup and and, and stay inside out, out of the sun. They're not made to go work in the vineyard by their brothers. You know, these people who are able to focus on their, their looks all the time, that they've got their own YouTube channel to tell other people how to put on makeup, and they say, look at us, and this is not that. It's a hard-working woman that goes out in the field, and she looks like it. And I don't think she's just being modest. I think here's a woman who does not... Who does not look conventionally beautiful. And so she says as much to Solomon. In chapter 2 and verse 1. She says of herself. I am the rose of Sharon. The lilies of the valley. Or the lily of the valleys. We read that. And and we've got a couple of songs. That are awkwardly taken from this verse. I don't want to just pour cold water. On um, if, if you love Jesus, Rose of Sharon, or the Lily of the Valley, but I'm going to just a little bit. 
I wish that they would translate I am the Rose of Sharon um, as, as it is sometimes put in the footnote. It's crocus. Now, I don't think, I mean, it's the same, it's the same flower regardless. Um, but crocus sounds a little less refined, right? Rose of Sharon, that sounds really nice. It's not a pleasant thing. She's not saying, look how beautiful I am. She doesn't say, I'm the Rose of Sharon. She's like, I'm nothing. I'm like, I'm like a flower. I'm like a weed that grows on the side of the road. And when she says, I'm a lily of the valley, what she's saying is, I'm the kind of lily that grows out there with a million other lilies. There's nothing special about me. So, I understand that when we sing Jesus, Rose of Sharon, what we're doing is trying to pay Jesus a compliment. I understand when we sing he's the lily of the valley. In our minds, that means he's special. But that's not what she meant. What she meant is, I am nothing special. Well, what is his response to her sort of pointing to her commonality? Verse 2 of chapter 2. No, no, no. Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. You're not a lily among a bunch of other lilies. You're a lily and they're thorns. You are special. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest. You know, they're just, they don't, they don't produce anything. They're not, they, don't, they don't hold any appeal to me. But you're like an apple tree, a prized tree among the trees. So is my beloved, she says back to him, among the young men. And in his shade, I took great delight and sat down. And so they, they hold each other up. I wonder sometimes if we are so concerned about being accurate that, that we lose sight of, of what we want to make our spouse feel, right? So, like, around anniversaries, some people say, I have the best wife. Or I have the most beautiful wife. Or, or whatever, fill in the blank. And I, I know people who are like, well, look, I mean, my wife's a good wife. I don't know if she's the best wife. Well, number one, she's the best wife you got. And you ought to make her feel like it. And so when Solomon says, you are a lily among the thorns, it's not like that's objectively, observably true from some scientific survey. He's saying, to me, that's what you are. To me, you are the most beautiful. There's nobody else. When I look at you, you're it to me. He takes the time to be very specific as he goes through and gives her compliments. He says in verse one and verse uh, chapter one and verse nine. He says, to me, my darling, you are like, you are like a, my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. One of the things that's difficult when you're reading poetry from long ago or from far away is that it does not always translate. So taking the best of the compliments from the Song of Solomon and trying to use them with your spouse may not go well. If you start by saying, you are like a horse to me, you're probably not going to finish that sentence in any way that's going to work out well. What he's saying, though, is you're like a female horse among the chariots of Pharaoh. They don't tie up female horses with chariots. 
do you mind if I go about five minutes over here? Okay, good. They don't tie up a female horse with the chariots because it would drive the male horses crazy. So what is he saying? Hey, you, you drive me crazy in a good way. That's what he's saying there. And so we could figure out a way to put that into our kind of language. Over in chapter 4, some of this language really gets um, interesting. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones, on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies, until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. First of all, I don't think I don't think that if you were able to see this woman that you would be able to examine her and say, yeah, I, I, actually, there's no blemish. You know what Solomon say? I don't see him. When I look at you, all I see is perfection. All I see is beauty. I don't, I don't notice the blemishes. They're not blemishes to me. They're precious. But back to the compliments. They are foreign to us. We would never say, oh, your hair, like a flock of goats. And then she's not going to swoon when she hears that. But really, the idea of looking off in the distance and seeing a, a, a flock of likely black goats descending from the mountain, the idea of that waving hair coming down, there is there would be beauty in that. And she would know that, to be sure. What's more, your teeth, like the flock of newly shorn uh, use and and uh, they they've come up from their washing. They each bear twins, and none of lost their young. Essentially, he's saying, "Wow, you have all of your teeth, and they are white, and they are symmetrical." Like again, I don't know that that's very romantic, but if you were to say to a woman, "There's nothing to me like seeing you smile," that's what he's saying. Right? He's saying, "I I love, I love to see." that. And on and on in all these cases. And, and what you've got to do is just think, how would we say that? How would we compliment somebody in a way that wouldn't be, you know, like socially awkward here, but, but that would be meaningful? What could you say? Say it. Speak about your love. Over in chapter 7 and verse 4, this one is odd. Your neck is like a tower of ivory and your eyes like the pool's uh, in Heshbon, by the gate of Bath Rabim, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which faces towards Damascus. I just, I don't know, you know, how you can say to a woman that anything is like a tower. She was probably going to say, if you say your nose is like a tower, it sticks out. What are you saying? Again, I don't know. We don't have the kind of appreciation for architecture that most cultures have had through the ages. 
But the idea of seeing something that just is magnificent on the horizon, that's the idea. You look and you just see it's an impressive sight. And it sort of strikes all for you to see that. And what I want to suggest to you is here is a man who is taking the time to go over every body part and of thinking of something pleasant and kind to say. That is not the sort of thing we do very often. And it's the thing that we probably ought to do more often. And we ought to push through the awkwardness of a world that does not talk that way. Talk that way. Find moments to say those things. You say, well, I can't say that to her face. I'm going to have to write that down. Well, Solomon wrote it down, so write it down. And do that. But but let each other know. And particularly, a, a wife wants to know that you see her this way. The whole world is showing their bodies off to men everywhere you go. Your wife sees that. She feels the constant comparison. And a woman needs to know that her man looks at her and says... None of that means anything when I look at you. You rise above all of them. And that's what Solomon is communicating. Among a thousand women, he's saying, you look more precious to me than all. Hosea chapter 2. We looked at Hosea earlier. And in verse 14 there, Hosea 2 and verse 14. When it says, I I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and and speak kindly to her. The the idea in one translation, if it puts it this way, it says, I will lift up her chin. Um, I think that notion of lifting up the chin of one another Not only can a man speak to his wife in this way, but a woman can speak to her husband in this way. And particularly a husband is not as concerned, though, I mean, some may be, but not as concerned about the good looks language, you know, that you look all of these things, but that you, that I trust you. That I I know that you provide for us and that you, that I put my life in your hands. A man wants to feel that his family trusts him. And so that can be the kind of specific language. But in either way, the idea is, I'll pick you up when I see you're down. Can I suggest don't even wait till you see that they're down? There's a lot, there's a lot to take there. And you can read through and you can see some of the more intimate language. You can see some of the language that suggests the, the specifics of the delight that they take from one another. But I think both in word and in deed, one of the things that we need to do in marriage relationship is slow down and appreciate each other more. Because that's what Song of Solomon is. It's a whole book about people taking time to appreciate each other. Um, When Brother Waldron was at our house on one occasion after he had lost his wife, some of you may know Bob Waldron, some of you may not, but... um, his wife Sandra was very dear they worked so closely together in in their work in the kingdom and we were sitting around the table we were laughing and carrying on 
It's three couples and Brother Walter, and he was staying with us. And and in the midst of all that laughter, <clears throat> he he got very serious. He said, "Do you mind if I say something a little bit serious?" And he, of course, you know you don't mind. And he said, "I want you to know what I miss most about being married." And we're like, "Well, what would that be?" And he said, "I miss having someone to cherish." And you all have someone to cherish right now. And I don't want any of you to take that for granted. Well, we went from laughing to tears. Tears with him, but beautiful tears. And and that's a conversation we will not forget. But I hope that you'll take the time to cherish each other and to do so in serious, meaningful ways. Well, This is obviously a lesson focused on that relationship in marriage. But as I've alluded to in this lesson, there is inherent in that a reminder of God saying there's even better things to come. And so as we think about that, I I hope that as you look at that, whether you have the beauty of that relationship and it is a reminder of the great things to come, or whether you don't, What God says is, even if you do not, then if you would reserve yourself for me, then what is at the end of that is not something that is as satisfying as marriage, but something that puts marriage into the position of a shadow of the glories that are to come. So, the lesson is not to push you towards marriage ultimately, but to push you towards God, which every aspect of his creation is meant to do. And so if you're not in a relationship with him, then I hope you would listen to his call. I hope that you would become his beloved this very morning. If there's any way we can help you with that, why don't you come forward while we stand and while we sing.